Would you please be seated and keep your Bibles open to Luke and we'll continue the reading in verse 67 through to 80. So Luke chapter 1 beginning at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, to Israel. The word of the Lord. Let us pray and then we'll come to the word of God. Father God, we ask on this second Sunday of Advent that again you would remind us of the glorious story of the giving of your son and the preparation laid down for him to come. We thank you, Father God, that we find ourselves in the position where this story includes us, and we thank you for the tender mercy shown towards us in Christ Jesus. We pray this morning that you would uh, enlighten our mind, that we would fully grasp in our heart the wonders that you have done for us in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, it almost goes without saying, um, but not quite. And that is whenever we come face to face with Jesus, who is the tender mercy of God and the good news, a preparation needs to be laid first. No person is ready to meet God without Jesus Christ. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and not belong to Jesus. But it is also a fearful thing if we don't understand the background to which Jesus came into. In Galatians, we read that Jesus came at the right time. And therefore, if there is a right time for Jesus to come, then what preceded him lays the foundation for us to understand who Jesus is. And now the ministry of John, in exactly the same way, is laying a preparation so that the people of God can understand the coming of the Messiah. Now often when we think of preparation, we think of something that we need to know in order to accomplish something else. 
Now, of course, when you prepare someone to hear the good news about Jesus, and you do the work of John the Baptist every time you talk to an unbelieving member of your family, or to an unbelieving member in your town or neighborhood, or wherever it may be, and the way you prepare them is by demonstrating to them the bad news of the world that they live in, in order to receive the good news in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus makes sense in that he comes into a fallen world. The good news of Christ Jesus only makes sense if the news currently is bad. Jesus only makes sense as saviour if we need saving. Now the interesting thing here in John's message to the people of God is that it is to the people of God. Pay close attention to the fact that John is the promised prophet or the promised messenger that will speak to the people of God to prepare God's own people for their own Messiah. Now that is a little different than how we prepare people today for Jesus Christ in laying out the fall, the creation, the fall, and then the redemption in Christ Jesus. So all people need preparing but the reason for not overlooking, overlooking this preparation of John is because of where the promise was first made and who it was made to. Now the people in Zechariah's day have been living in oppression. They are under the Roman occupation. But almost all of Israel's cultural history, that is the history of the nation, is one where they have been living alongside or amongst their enemies. They have always been a people in constant need of rescue, of redemption, of salvation. Now, of course, Jesus comes at a time where the people, again, are living under Roman occupation. And so the idea of living under oppression and living under the rule of someone else is something which every one of God's people would have understood. Because it is what their life is made up of every single day. Not at one point do they really truly appreciate what God is doing. In fact, when Christ comes, the question is, will they receive him? Now I want you to think about this with your own children. Because in much the same way, your children are growing up in a Christian home, and we thank God for that, but they too need the same kind of preparation that John gives to the people of Israel. That they too need to understand the reason for the Messiah coming. They need to understand why he is the tender mercy of God. They need to understand why he is the one who provides forgiveness of sins and why we need it. And so in short, we need a messenger. We need someone to set us up so that we can actually receive and hear Jesus Christ properly understood. Sin corrupts, and therefore it corrupts our mind. It makes us forgetful. It can even cause us to believe that we're not sinful. And therefore, if we don't see ourselves in the proper light, we certainly won't see any need to pay any attention to Jesus Christ, anything he has to say, or anything he actually does. We all need the preparatory work of the news. The difference between us and Israel is that they have a long history 
of that news. They lived with the badness of sin and oppression. We, in the modern day society, that needs to be pointed out to us, nor not us, but the people that we actually live with. Life is relationship with God. And if someone does not have relationship with God in the context of belonging to Christ, they do not have life. And that is a hard message for somebody to hear. It is also equally hard to perhaps lay the foundation that if a person does not belong to Christ, then they are not fully human. That's a hard message. In fact, Christ was the only person who was truly, fully human. Because we read that he was without sin. Now if Christ is truly human, and he is without sin, that is the very definition of humanity. What we are is fallen humanity. We are not true and full as we could be. We are less than what we ought to be. Or else we're saying something about Christ that isn't true. Christ is truly and fully human. Now, Zechariah's prophecy is also referred to as the Benedictus, like Mary's song is referred to as the Magnificat. And what they both point to is the blessed reality of God's faithfulness towards the covenant that he made with Abraham. Hence why the language is always referred to here as God's people. In fact, once you understand that Zechariah's prophecy is based on the promise made to Abraham, then you can understand verse like verse 77, where the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins is being made known to the people of God. Now, you would imagine that out of the whole world, the very people who would have understood forgiveness and sacrifice and the need for that would have been God's people. They had a long history demonstrating to themselves on the Day of Atonement and throughout the rest of the year the need for offerings, the need for sacrifice, the need to be made right with God. And yet here God is preparing them for Jesus by giving them a messenger to give them the news of the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Why do God's people need preparing in the very thing that they have lived with for so long? Well, let's look at this in terms of its summary. In verse 67, you'll notice that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, which means that he is simply speaking God's words to God's people in this context. He is speaking God's word to the people of God. And he begins verse 68 by saying that the events promise, uh, he can speak of them as though they have already happened. If you just look at the language here, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Well, some critic might say, well, not yet he hasn't. But Zechariah is pointing out that when you read God in light of his promises, they are as good as accomplished. And so what we read is not only has God promised this, but this is now the day where that promise will be fulfilled. And so the assurance of receiving the promise is just as strong as the assurance of receiving the outcome of that promise, the accomplishment of that promise. And that is good news for us as we still live with a number of promises that are yet to be fulfilled. 
the new heavens and the new earth, the return of Christ, the bodily resurrection. These are good things that we have been promised. And we can speak of them as though they have already are because of the certainty of God's uh, promise. And so don't overlook the fact that when we hear God's words, they are as good as if they have already happened. And this is exactly the type of language that Zechariah is using. And remember, he is filled with the Holy Spirit when he is using these words to speak to the people that he is speaking to. Now, of course, the son who prepares the way is his son, John, who is later known as John the Baptist. And he is the one who will prepare the way of Jesus. And John makes it very clear that he is not the salvation that God promised. He is the sign to the salvation, but he is not the salvation itself. That's Jesus. John is the promised messenger promised back in Malachi 3. And so the strength and power that is needed is not to be found in John to accomplish salvation. It is to be found in Jesus Christ, the one who John is about to speak about. Jesus is the one who will rescue people. John is the one who will point God's people to Jesus so that they would repent and put their trust in him. John is the one who will speak in light of the covenant and Jesus is the one who will actually fulfill the covenant, verse 72. And so the covenant made with Abraham in the past is being fulfilled in their day. And so don't overlook this idea of just how strong the covenant promise is because it's based around sons and it's also based around descendants. And the moment we forget that, it is then we can't really make sense of why John the Baptist is making the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins known to the people of God. The only time you would not understand why that's the case or why that actually has to happen is if you have actually forgotten that the covenant addresses the idea of sonship, that it addresses the idea of descendants. And we'll come back to that in a moment. In verse 76, we read that the child is spoken of here, one that we know to be John, as preparing the way, getting people ready to meet Jesus Christ. And so we have that principle laid out again, that to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Paul lays this out quite clearly in the book of Romans, that the gospel comes to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, just as the covenant promised that it would, bringing both the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, which is the salvation that people enjoy. And so I want you to think about how this plans out in the actual gospel narratives. Almost every occasion that you see is that Jesus coming to his own people. The sadness is, is that when he came to his own people, they received him not. That when Jesus actually entered into Jerusalem and all of God's people expected him to enter the Roman garrison and throw them out, he actually entered the temple and overturned the tables. You see, now we begin to understand why the people of God need to be prepared to receive Jesus. Because what they are expecting to happen is not actually what happens when Jesus comes. They're expecting a type of rule that overthrows the oppressors and sort of lifts Israel up as though they have done 
nothing wrong and they have no need of change. But it's actually the very people of God who actually need to change first. The world will change. Christ does exercise kingly rule over the world, which is why our confession of sin focused on Psalm 110, the first two verses. Because King uh, Jesus reigns both now and forevermore. The point here is, is that the reason why the people of God need preparation in order to receive Jesus is because their idea of what the Messiah will do is not what they believe that he has actually come to do. And so John is preparing their way, the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus Christ is the tender mercy of God, verse 72 and verse 78. That he is the one who gives light to those who sit in darkness. That he is the one who <clears throat> causes them to enter out of the shadow of death, pacing, uh, making its way over them, and able to allow them to walk in peace. And so I've broken this down into two sort of ideas that are quite clear to see as you read through this passage, and that is John is the sign and Jesus is the salvation. So the sign, John is the signpost. He points to Jesus. And John, like all other signs, does not draw attention to himself, but draws attention to that which he is pointing to. John points to Jesus, and the focus is on Jesus, but not entirely. The reason why we need a little bit of focus on John is because we need to know where to go. John is the messenger. We need to pay attention to John so that we can be prepared to meet Jesus. But we don't stop at John as though we've reached the end. John doesn't want people to come to him and then stop with him. He wants people to come and listen to him so that they would move from him to Jesus. That's the difference between the sign and the salvation. Now, of course, none of us here would make that mistake with any other sign. We wouldn't stop at a sign that said beach three miles and then get out our picnic blanket and our bucket and spades at the sign. We would move on to where the sign points to. And so the same thing is true when it comes to people. The trouble is, is when it comes to people, there becomes this kind of attachment. And so John begins to get followers and he is constantly trying to get those followers to go to Jesus, even to the point where John even sends his followers to Jesus, asking if Jesus is the one who was promised, or should he look for another? So even John had a moment where he needed to listen to his own preparation. And so what we begin to see over and over again is that the focus is not on John, but we need to look at John in order to see and be directed towards Jesus. Why? Because the people sit in darkness. And what that means is, is that if you are sat in a dark room, you cannot see. And if you are sat in darkness and the shadow of death is passing over you, it is a looming reality which is a, one that just brings your mind to the thought that this isn't going to end well. And so the knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins is like the light at the end of the tunnel. It is like the light entering the room. It is like the idea of the resurrection and light of death. This is the tender mercy of God. 
And so to give you an example of what this actually looks like in the world, I want you to imagine all your unbelieving, and even yourself, friends and neighbors and enemies, whoever they may be, in the summer sat on a chair out in the garden. And as they sit there throughout the whole day in a beautiful sunny day, the shadow of the surrounding objects passes over them. And the longer they sit there, the more and more their body enters into the shadow. Well, that's an image of life and death. That every single one you know, even yourself, the shadow of death is passing over you to, to the point where it will one day eclipse you. And now, of course, there is a difference between passing through the shadow and passing through the reality. In other words, perhaps you have been walking down the pavement, the sidewalk, and a large truck is driven by and the shadow of the truck passes through you. You don't feel the force or weight of the truck hitting you because it's only a shadow. And it's quite different from the reality of the truck actually hitting you. Well, in the same way, people spend their whole life passing through or the shadow of death is passing over them and they don't feel a thing until the day it hits them for real. And so what we have is the reality that in Christ Jesus, we pass through death like it would be if it was just a shadow. The reality of death doesn't hit us. We pass through it, for we have both life now and forevermore in Christ Jesus. This is the glorious message. This is what we need to be prepared to hear. And so people in this world who do not know Christ are literally sitting in the garden with these shadows passing over them, thinking that the end will never come. Only it does. And the reality is much worse than the shadow that they currently feel. It's called getting old. We don't feel it anymore. Because the reason we don't feel it anymore is because the, the, what causes the shadows over us is the light of the gospel. It's the Psalm 23, that he who walked through the valley of the shadow of death, the only reason why you can have a shadow in the valley of the shadow of death is if you have light. It is the light that causes the shadow. And it is the shadow which is the reminder. And so this is the glorious mercy, the tender mercy of God, which allows us to be not afraid of the shadow of death passing over us anymore. Because we will pass through death like we pass through any other shadow. It will not keep us down or hold us back. This is the preparatory message that John has to the people of God. To the people of God. Think of creation. Light comes out of darkness. Light comes out of darkness. Light comes out of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant people of God pass through dark times only to enter into the light of Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of sins. That's the sign. That's the many signs. And now we come to the salvation. So what we should never forget is that there are many signs in the world which God allows us to experience to wake us up to the reality that we need Jesus Christ. And this is what John is doing with the very people of God. He is moving their consciences, reminding them of the covenant that God has made with them, showing them that the tender mercy of God is actually going to be a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. 
And so the salvation that Jesus brings must be understood in light of the preparation that John makes. Because this is why we are this is why we can understand that the salvation is covenantal, in that it was a promise made to Abraham and before that to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 15. But the covenant made with Abraham highlights a couple of things that you should be wonderfully encouraged by. And that is the promise includes descendants. Let me just spell this out for you. When the covenant made, was made with Abraham, Abraham did not withhold his son, but at the moment, at the point where it looked like it was that Abraham's son was going to come to an end in his life being brought forth to God, God said stop, and God provided another way. But the covenant is then made in the fact that God will not withhold his son. But the joy of that covenant is that it is made to Abraham and his descendants. And we should never forget that. Because the moment you understand that it is made to his descendants, now you can understand why John is a messenger to the people of God. Why? Because they're God's descendants. They are descendants of the covenant promise. See, the only way it makes sense for John to be a messenger to the people of God is if there are such a people. And those people are the covenant members of the promise that was made to Abraham. And so I never want you to overlook this, this beautiful truth. You also see the same sacrifice. Have you ever read the Old Testament and wondered why there's never a sacrifice made for people who are not belonging to Israel? I mean, all the sacrifices ever made, all the offerings ever made, are only ever for the people of God and their relationship with God. In other words, sacrifice, salvation, is part of God's promise that he's already laid out over and over and over again. And we see this as a beautiful image of just showing us that God is setting us up, he's setting his people up, to receive salvation in Christ Jesus, and it first comes to his own people. It's a historical image that basically lays it out quite clear to us that the sacrifice of Christ should be first and foremost understood and received by his own people. They're the one who have had so much foreshadowing and so much preparation. But what I don't want to overlook is the fact that included in the covenant promise are descendants. The descendants of the promise made to Abraham. To you and the, and the people that come after you. We read in Acts um, that the gospel is for you and for your children. Now I grew up in a church where I was told over and over again, and this was almost like an evangelistic endeavor, that God has no grandchildren. That God has no grandchildren. That each and every person must come to God on his own basis. Each and every person must repent and believe on their own terms. I accept that. I fully accept that. That's what the Bible teaches. But sometimes it sounds like when you say God has no grandchildren, it sounds like God has no descendants. And that's not true. There are descendants of the promise. Read it for yourselves back in Genesis 17. It is true that God has no grandchildren. 
but it is not true that he doesn't have any descendants of the promise. Hence why Zechariah's prophecy in the preparation of John is a message to his own people, the descendants. God is keeping his promise to a specific group of people. And so often, this is lost with so many people believing that that what God does today isn't related to what God has done in the past. And when people say things like God has no grandchildren, what they're effectively saying is is that God treats us all like individuals. That that I'm not related to to the people that came before me. That my faith in God is not related to Abraham's faith in God, when it is. And so sometimes people use language to explain things away that perhaps they have got wrong in the past and don't want to admit it. It is better to speak and to use the language of Scripture. God has no grandchildren is not biblical language. God has descendants of the promise that he made with Abraham is biblical language and it frames your heart and mind entirely different than just the language of the other sort. It is a misreading of scripture. It is true that each person has to repent and believe. John led people in the baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness in Christ Jesus. That's true. Each person has to repent and believe. But it is not true to say that what is happening today is not related to the promise that God made in the past, when it is. Well, let me close with this. The salvation that Jesus brings is a salvation according to Zechariah's prophecy, one that will fill us with holiness and righteousness so that we can be a people who serve God without fear, a people whose hearts will be filled with holiness and who practice righteous deeds before him. We are no longer a people who live in the shadow of death, but we live in the context of holiness and righteousness. So we have not received a knowledge that causes us to fall back into fear, but actually receive both Christ and the Spirit of God that allows us to serve God faithfully without fear. We are descendants of the promise. We are descendants of the promise that God made to Abraham. God may not have grandchildren, but he most certainly does have descendants according to the promise. And in that, you should rejoice. Amen. Amen.